Hi, Hello PhD listeners. Happy start to a new academic semester for many of you. Through our experience in doing this show for all these years, we think a lot about grad school and how to make it better. That includes sometimes throwing out our crazy ideas about how we would revamp graduate training if we were in charge. In that spirit, we wanted to share this episode from May 2019, where we discuss what PhD training would look like if programs had a set time limit versus the current open-ended structure. This episode generated a lot of discussion the last time it aired, so we thought we'd share it again with you now. Hope you enjoy. This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. Welcome to Joshua Hall's 15-minute PhD or your money back. $99.95. I still can feel the anxiety of not knowing if it was going to be another year or two years or three years. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we imagine a world where every PhD student finishes in five years. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 114. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hey there, Dan. Josh, good to see you. Good to see you. I, I have to tell you, normally in my life, I don't eat a lot of desserts. Today, after dinner, we had, you know, this is the season of the year where people are just trying to dump strawberries on you because... They're so abundant. They're in all the stores. They're all on sale. Yeah, so, peak strawberry season. I think I read here in North Carolina, we are one of the top producers of strawberries outside of California, maybe? Must be, because my wife and I bought strawberries. Somebody brought us strawberries over the weekend. Somebody also brought a shortcake over the weekend. So tonight, I made myself a strawberry shortcake. There was already whipped cream in the fridge. It was delicious. And then I show up here, and you serve me a second dessert. Yeah, this is... Pretty close to a dessert beer, I would say. I don't know how you could get closer. Tell them what we're drinking. All right, Dan. We are drinking yet another beer from a listener, from Adrian, who generously sent us a, a wide range of flavors. A wide from range. Adrian. We have we've spanned the entire taste spectrum and color spectrum, Dan. Um, I don't know what would be oh, the, the SRM uh, value on this. I SRM value, but whatever the max range, this has to be pushing it. Uh, but Dan, this is the morning smack from Three Taverns Craft Brewery in Decatur, Georgia. I'm going to call this a 24 ruby brown. I think it's a little darker than that. I don't know. So the Deep brown? The scale goes to what, 60? This this one goes to 40. I don't know. Okay, well, on a 40 scale, so I poured this out, and it looked like oil. <laughs> yeah, it does. It really does. Uh, this has to be at least a 35 on a 40 scale. Thankfully, it does not taste like oil. No, it does not taste like oil. So Dan, what I actually would like to do, play a little game. You have not seen the can that these came I've out of. I've seen the title. You've seen the, the title, Morning Smack. Walk me through what flavors. So there are, at least on the marketing speak, on the can, three distinct flavors that are listed here. I want to see if you can pick any or all of the three out from tasting this beer. Okay, it is sweet. There is a sweetness to it. Mm-hmm. I'm and and the top note for me is a maple flavor. Hey right, Dan, I'm going to tell you that you are correct with that. Maple was actually the first one listed. Is, is brown sugar on the list? Uh, brown sugar is not on the list. Dog vomit. No, <laughs> no, that's a different beer. Uh, 
No, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm getting maple and brown sugar. Maybe some coffee, maybe some chocolate. Okay, well, actually, this is classified as a coffee milk stout, uh, but I was not including that in the three more unusual flavors that were added here, maple being the first. I'll give you a hint, Dan. The, Dandelions. The word morning is a hint here. I mean, it tastes like oatmeal to me. Could it be oatmeal? It's not oatmeal. Would you taste bacon? No, I don't taste any bacon. <laughs> are you kidding me? So so I'll, I'll go ahead and tell you, Dan. Besides maple, the other two flavors that are mentioned are bacon and banana. No, I disagree. You're going you're gonna to say that that flavor is in there because you just read it and you're highly suggestible? I don't know that I would have picked out bacon or banana. Yeah. Even, maple even is being very suggested. clear to me. Maple, very, very maple forward. Maybe maple bacon, which is just maple. I can see that. Uh, but this is a maple bacon banana coffee milk stout. It's breakfast in a, <laughs> in a glass. It's not a morning snack, a morning smack. Uh, but anyway, thanks to Adrian. Uh, this is delicious. And it is really good, yeah. The weather was a little bit cooler today, so I thought this was our last chance for a couple months to... <laughs> <laughs> to drink this heavy uh before it eats back beer. up yep. yeah dan sometimes at the end of the show we always put out a, a request for folks to give us feedback on itunes or their favorite podcast app and we got a got a review oh Thought we can, could read can you read it for us sure so this came from allison and this uh was entitled beautiful job five stars love it and so Allison said, this podcast does a great job of covering the challenges of graduate training in science in a very thoughtful and real way. Plus, they give great beer recommendations. 10 out of 10, outstanding podcast. Keep up the good work. 10 out of 10 and yet only five stars? I know. I didn't say it. it's five stars out of 10 stars. So, you know. We only got half the stars. Half the stars. There are additional yeah, well, stars we could still I earn. I think Allison wished she could give 10 stars, but was limited by the restrictions that Apple put upon her. Well, thank you, Allison. And thank you to everybody else who goes and leaves a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. It really, we like to read it, obviously, but presumably it helps other people find the show. So uh, it's a great way to support us if you can. That's right, Dan. And speaking of support, we wanted to thank our friends at Promega. What does Promega have going on these days, Dan? Uh, something called Crisp R. Have you heard of Crisp R, Josh? That is my favorite breakfast cereal. So good. Uh, Do you remember the uh, Rice Krispies? They, they used to, I feel like, market this, but I don't know if they anymore. You could put your ear down to the bowl and hear them. My kids love Rice Krispies. It still works. They do that. They put their ears down and yeah, talks snap, to crackle, you. pop. Snap, That's crackle, right. pop. Yeah, yeah, there it is. Uh, that is not what Promega is talking about. It's CRISPR, one of the hottest topics in biology research right now, obviously. Even me, having been out of the lab as long as CRISPR has been around, I know about CRISPR. So it tells you uh, how much this has entered the, the popular culture. And on June 4th, Promega will do a webinar on applications of CRISPR-Cas9-mediated gene editing and how you can use it to study protein dynamics in live cells without overexpression. So if that sounds like something, uh, a technique that you would like to use in your lab, visit promega.com slash hellophd to get more information and a link to register for the webinar. All right, Josh, let's get to our main topic. Dan, there was this thing going around Twitter uh, last week where there was this call for posting your most controversial viewpoint that you believed in your heart to be true. So a lot of really funny, great responses. But for some reason, Dan, the thing that came to my mind was something that we talked about, I know, many episodes ago. turns out it was three years ago. And that was the idea that PhD training could possibly last a fixed amount of time. That was the most controversial thing you could think of? I think so, Dan, because anytime I have mentioned it, and actually it did not fail when I posted it, 
<laughs> on Twitter, oh, you, you posted that as your idea on Twitter. I did. Although everything you post on Twitter how ends m- up being controversial to how someone. How many bots were after you after that? Yeah, so um, I, I guess I've had this idea for a while that imagine if a PhD, if you knew it was five years, if you started your PhD program and you knew if I do my work and, and do the things I need to do five years from today, I'm going to be done. What would that be like? I, I'm, I'm still... Uh, step back with me one second because you put this on Twitter and if, if you said it in public at a research university, I can predict how shrill the responses would be from the faculty members that would say, but they'll never learn what they need to learn and people will just warm the bench until they get their degree. And, and you would hear this litany of, of complaints. But I feel like on Twitter... It's more students who are actually suffering through the unending PhD program, and you may have gotten some support. So was it positive, negative? How did it go? Yeah, so that's absolutely true. There were, there were almost two threads. Um, one thread was, was absolutely from tra- current trainees or, or folks who had been through the process and had an experience where that indeed was stressful. So there was a lot of support from the idea from people who were currently feeling a lot of trepidation about when they were going to finish their training right now and uncertainty about when that date was going to be. And then others, Dan, who I think remembered quite well their feeling um, during their training in the past about that uncertainty. And Dan, I think you have some experience with that too. Yeah, well, you know, you and I, many, many years ago, way back in 2016, had a conversation about this. And I think I was the shrill protester those many years ago because it just seemed outlandish to me to think that that system would work. So why, why don't we play back that conversation that we had in 2016? And then what I'd love to hear is, I think my views have changed a little bit, maybe because you've been working on them, uh, but I'd love to hear how your views have changed. Well, why don't we just go through and, and flesh this argument out? So we're going to play this, this discussion that we had three years ago, and, and then we'll jump back in and see how we feel today. Fixing the amount of time it takes to get a PhD. And I got to tell you, I'm skeptical about what you're what you're trying to pitch, because to me, a PhD is um, you doing an independent project. You are demonstrating that you've got the chops to think through it, that you've got the, the ability to design the experiments, to carry them out, to interpret the results, to communicate those to your committee and to the general audience, to write papers. And I can't imagine how you could prove all those things to me. Ever, that each person could do that in the same way in the same time frame. I definitely feel your concerns, Dan. And and first of all, as you know, I have utmost respect for the process of getting a PhD and the transferable skills that are gained through that process. And all those things you said, I totally agree, are one of the things that make you really so marketable to such a broad range of, of jobs and careers after grad school um, because of those those things you learn. But I guess... You know, the first thing that came to mind to me in just thinking through how can we modernize the PhD? Well, the very fact that we would have a conversation about how to modernize it means that in some ways we're saying the way we do things must be antiquated or must not, or some way we used to do things that might have made sense back in the day don't make sense with the realities of the world today. And one of those is, is one of the things we talk about all the time on the show, and that is what do grad students go do after they get their PhD? 
Uh, they do a lot of different, diverse things. So many yeah. different things. And if we think about what did they used to do? Well, most of them actually used to go on often directly and start their own labs. Well, and, that, and, and we're talking about modern and we're not talking about ancient. That was probably true <laughs> 25 or 30 years ago, right? Yeah, right. Not that long this ago. This wasn't the, the 1740s when, when scientists were being trained in labs. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, probably if you look at some of the older members of your own department, chances are they may have come straight into a faculty job right out of graduate school. Because you know, I think, as you mentioned, not that long ago, that was kind of the model. Most people who went to graduate school, their goal was to become a faculty member themselves at a different institution, and most of them actually did that. And so it made sense for the training experience to prepare them to do that, right? Yeah, and, and we have often quipped that that training experience doesn't really train you to lead a lab. It trains you to work at a bench, but fine. Well, and that's that's totally true. And I think a lot of <laughs> a lot of PIs today would say the reality is what they actually have to do as a PI. They weren't really trained to do. Yeah, um, they needed to modernize it. 50 years ago. Oh, yeah. yeah, even for the people going on to start yeah. their lab. Um, but the idea being PhD training really is this apprenticeship model, this apprentice model where, you know, you go and work side by side with someone doing science and you learn to do science yourself so that you can lead your own scientific pursuit independently on your own. So you think there's a better way... Um, since since so few people actually go on to lead their own labs, we don't need to actually tailor the training to you are apprenticing under me to become just like me. Yeah, well, I guess that's the thing we should at least think about is if the training model we're using is fairly similar to the training model we used 30 or 40 years ago when most everyone was going on to start their own labs. And the reality today is only, let's say, 10 or 15% of people are doing that, well, is that really the best model for the vast majority of people? And I would argue, for even the people who are going on and starting their own lab these days, they're not doing that directly from graduate school. What do they do? Well, you have to do I mean, you have to do a postdoc and for at least five more years. I was going to say it's six years, it's seven years. And that can be your apprenticeship for running your own lab. So in my mind... Is there really any need for graduate school, the PhD in the sciences, to be structured as this apprentice model to run your own lab? I would argue maybe not because no one is going on to run their own lab right out of grad school. You know, uh, I bought a house recently, and on the application for the mortgage, they ask you how many years of schooling you have. And I I had to do the math. I was like, wait a second. Luckily, it wasn't check boxes one, two, three, four. This should be... This should be 12 plus 4, but it's 12 <laughs> plus 4 plus 5. You know, oh, man. Makes you feel really great. I wonder if that helps or hurts on the application. Uh, maybe it hurts because they recognize <laughs> that you were a poor grad student for so long. I have no idea. Yeah, there's probably like a bell curve, like a peak number of years yeah. that you have the most earning, and then it tails off after that. Didn't make me feel better. Yeah, so I guess what I wonder is, is there a way, to your point, Dan, you know, there are a lot of really important things that happen during that training process. So what I'm not trying to do is discount or or change things in such a way that graduate students aren't learning to think critically about problems, to identify the right questions to ask, and, and ways to, on their own, figure out ways to solve those problems. I think that's fundamentally true. I guess what I'm wondering is, as a PhD drags on to year six and seven, like, really, what are you getting? Like, is there really that much more learning that's happening at that point? Or yeah, I mean, I I hear you. It feels like um, the 
time it takes is secondary, though. So you drag on to year four or five because you haven't apprenticed in the way that we've asked you to. You haven't written enough papers. Um, but it, it seems like the fix you're asking for is fundamentally about how we're doing the training, not about how much time it takes. So what if it takes seven years to do the training the right way? Um, is that okay? Well, I think I think by tightening up some of the structures, by or at least paying more attention to some of the structures or being more intentional at least, a byproduct of that could be actually shortening the time to degree and making it more standardized. Because one thing I've seen is a lot of departments might say, okay, you should have a committee meeting every six months or once a year. But that's not always enforced very well. You know, sometimes it's kind of up to the student to do that or maybe up to the director of graduate studies to kind of facilitate that. Uh, but in a lot of situations, in a lot of departments, there's no one really paying a lot of attention or no one really prodding students and making sure, okay, let's make sure you've had those meetings. And it's easy for months to slip into years and and no one's really ever seen that process. I guess if you think about medical school or dental school or really any kind of school besides graduate school. I love school, thinking about medical school and dental school. <laughs> like there's something about knowing the day you start medical school. Yep. You know what day you'll be done. Like if if you do all the things, right? If you pass the classes, you pass the classes, take all the practicums, do all do the your stuff rotate, you're supposed yep. to do. Me and all these people here with me, we will all have our MD degree on this day, four years from now, right? And it's a lot of work, right, to get there. It's not trivial. Kind of work, yeah. You don't do get that. a lot of sleep during that period of time, but yeah, yeah. And I guess I wonder is if let's imagine there is a a general five year timeline for the PhD. You know, you could still come in during that first year. You could still do your rotations, choose a lab. That's all the same. You join your lab. And now let's say, because there's this fixed time point, there's a little more incentive for the department and actually for you as the student to stay on top of your progress. And so, you know yourself, Dan, if you were presenting at lab meeting, like that week before would be super productive (laughs) because you knew you had this thing coming or you're getting ready to go to a meeting. Could do right. more experiments in one week than I would do in a semester. Yeah, right, of course. I had to, yeah. But because you had this thing coming up. So let's say the departments were much more diligent about saying, all of our students, you have to have a committee meeting. You will have a committee meeting once per semester. Therefore, every student, their progress is being much more carefully monitored. They're getting advice much more consistently. And the fact that they're working on this finite timeline, I would argue, and we've talked about it on the show before, one of the main reasons students lose motivation is because at some point, you know, you get four years in, you can't see the end. And it's like, well, who cares if I do this gel today or tomorrow? I mean, big yeah. deal. But if you've got this deadline kind of hanging over your head, you're going to constantly be motivated because you've, you've kind of got this finite end date when you know this is going to be over. It's fair. I like the idea of the fixed committee meetings. And um, I suspect that if you're going to draw the parallel to medical school, then you also have to accept that that committee meeting may end with, uh, uh, we don't think you're actually going to make it. You're not cut out for this. Or I I think people are released from medical school um, when their grades suffer. They have a meeting with some faculty members and the faculty assess their progress and say, look, you've got one more semester or something to make this work. Otherwise, we can't keep you, and which, re- which I think there will be PhDs who would have that same conversation, whereas in the current system, you know, you can float for five more years. I think the reality is that happens now. I mean, that is certainly something that can happen 
as a result of a committee meeting. But you can hide a lot by not having a committee meeting. Right. So I would argue, isn't it better if that is truly the case for that to happen two and a half years in versus you sort of float and hide and then you've been there, you've spent four and a half years of your life. I think it is better. I'm I'm not arguing against it. I'm saying I think it is better. Um, I think it's going to be painful, but, but it will identify it much earlier in the process mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. And if we think about the end, because one thing that I will acknowledge, one thing that's a little different, fundamentally different really between graduate school and something like medical school is you are trying to produce science. You're trying to produce research and results and that doesn't... Something new. And, and I know, Dan, you've been in multiple labs and you've left multiple labs. It never, there's never just a tidy bow that you can wrap at the end where you just finish you don't finish your project right that's right you you never finish you just stop you just stop at some point um which on one hand maybe that is a reason why the five-year finite phd could work because you really are never done but you know there will be a situation where maybe i'm i'm working on this paper it's not gonna be quite done at five years or but you know that happens too i remember when i finished my phd uh, it was about five and a half years and I was finishing up one paper I wrote after I was in my postdoc lab, you know, and that wasn't in a finite PhD situation, but I think people are doing that already anyway. And I think what you can do too is there could be some flexibility built in where let's say at the end of graduate school, I think I want to go on and be a PI. So it's going to be really important for me to get more papers if I can. That's useful currency. right? So maybe it'll exist some flexibility where I can stay if I want to and and try to finish up this last experiment, this last paper or whatever. But if you want to go on and do business or, sci- yeah, or science writing... And, you go ahead and be a masochist. I'm getting out of here. <laughs> yeah, but the thing about that happens to a lot of people out there. We know a lot of people go on to different careers after graduate school. What is being gained from them just because there's this hurdle of, oh, I have to finish this paper before they let me graduate, it's not useful to them for their career because having that paper is not useful currency for the thing that they want to do. It's true. It's probably not that useful for the PI. It would probably be more efficient for the PI to like cut that person loose and let somebody who's really more motivated to be there and finish it up, finish yeah, it up. It's funny you bring that up. Um, the last paper I published in grad school um, we collaborated with another lab, and I worked p- pretty closely with uh, this other guy. And we could have argued over who got first author, because we both, I think we had about an equal number of figures in the paper, and we had kind of thought of it and worked together on it. I didn't expect to need first author papers, so I didn't talk about it. You know, who cares? And no one has lately asked me whether I have any first author papers, so I guess it, I'm okay. There you go. So it wasn't important to you. Yeah, but let me let me um, nail you down here, Josh, okay. on some some more specifics. So you talked about um, having committee meetings regularly and on a fixed schedule. I like that. Do you see this still being project based? Is it still that I come in and um, we identify some some realm of science where I can push the envelope? And I work on it for that fixed five years and I'm done. Because if that's the case, if it's still that project-based thing, I'm not going to pick a mouse lab. Like we, we had a knockout mouse. If it were a fixed time period, that would have been a terrible idea. Well, those happen a lot faster now. Everybody go to flies. <laughs> but you know, but isn't that the case now? I mean, is it true people who go to a mouse lab graduate way slower than people who go to a fly lab? I have no idea. We should find out. We should find out. I guess what I would argue is if that were a big deal... Under the current system, where there is a very open-ended end date, 
if people were super hyper concerned about getting done faster, that would select for people running away from these from mouse, <laughs> mouse labs, labs yeah. and run to like model systems like worms or flies. And that's not happening. If anything, I think people would be more likely to choose maybe some of these more involved systems if they knew they weren't going to be stuck there forever. But you wouldn't be tied to the phenotype like, mm-hmm. oh, it looks like it's embryonic lethal. Sorry, no, no degree for you. Yeah. And, and, you know, I guess what I'm trying to get at, Dan, more broadly is an issue with graduate training is, again, to use the comparison to medical school, which is not a great comparison because they're fundamentally different. But really with any other kind of school, you can fill in the blank. If you and I start um, the same medical program, our experience is going to be pretty similar, right? We might take a couple different classes or whatever. Um, But for the most part, for me to get my MD and for you to get your MD, it's going to be pretty much the same. For graduate school, we actually did. We went to the same graduate school. We entered the same PhD program. I remember. <laughs> but no two graduate experiences are like. They're vastly different depending on the lab you choose at the time you choose. And also, even if we chose the same lab, I mean, there were three graduate students who joined my lab around the same time. We all had vastly different experiences because even our projects within that same lab were so different. And so I think another source of trepidation that graduate students have is there's so much uncertainty and variability in that process that factors in when you talk about how long is this going to take me to get done. That's why I'm asking about whether you're going to make it this project-based because medical school is not project-based. Like, yes, everybody gets a slightly different cadaver, but they're all laid out just about the same. You take the same classes, you study together, you eat together. And I think because we are in that phase, we're training doctors in a very specific way to stuff all this knowledge into their brain for their next phase where they're actually seeing patients. Um, It can be the same. But for an exploratory research career, is it possible to tie it up in a neat bow so that everybody gets the same type of experience? I'm not sure it's possible. No, you're absolutely right. And I don't want to give the impression that I'm comparing PhD training to medical training because I agree with you. I think the the goals are very different. I guess maybe what I'm saying is if the outcome you're trying to get is you and I enter graduate school at the same time, given the fact that our labs are different, our projects are different, our experience will be really different, if we both spend five years there, doing independent research, trying to figure out problems and answer questions, will we basically gain similar levels of skills, similar skills, even though the projects are different, even though the labs are different? Maybe because of part luck, maybe my projects all work the way we thought. Our hypotheses turn out the way we conceived them initially, and so I end up with two or three papers in the course of my five years, and I'm out. Maybe you had bad luck. Maybe you got scooped like our friend Jessica we talked to on the show. Maybe, you know, the hypothesis seemed like a good idea, but it didn't turn out. There were all these pitfalls you didn't perceive. You spend the same five years, but because of those unforeseen consequences, you have no papers, but you can't graduate because maybe there's this requirement that you have to have a publication. But does that mean you, until you get that publication that may be another year or two down the road, you haven't learned to think or to analyze the way I have just because I got lucky? Yeah, as you're talking about it, I guess we did have very different experiences, clearly. (laughs) Um, But we both are better at reading scientific papers now, and we both will notice the the flaws in logic if the other person is, is talking about something. And 
we both can do certain techniques that were related to the fields we're in. So yeah, regardless of, of the differences in our training, we did come out with very similar skill sets, I would say. Yeah. And, and I think anyone who goes through this process, um, they are developing those skills. I think there is a way, there's a time at which you really, you know, you've got those skills nailed down and you're probably ready to make that transition to the next thing. And again, my point being, if we go back you know, to the original idea here, which was thinking about modernizing the PhD and really what's PhD training all about anyway, if it started as an apprentice model for individuals who wanted to go on and start their own labs, well, nowadays, graduate school is not the last stop. You have this entire other apprentice step, the postdoc, that you have to go through for another five years at least before you start your own lab. So why drag graduate school out <laughs> even longer, right? If you're going to have to go through another five years of growth and learning to be an independent researcher. And for those of those of us who want to do something else, are we learning to think more in that last couple oh, of years? Oh, I learning to think more. <laughs> you're learning that you're so much more than last year. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I don't know, Dan. I've, in a lot of ways, this was really... You know, these are ideas that have been swirling around in my head, and I've been shooting from the hip a little bit. I don't know if it's made sense. I really would love to hear people's ideas and opinions. That's exactly on this. what I was going to say. It, it seems like a great, great time to have a conversation with everybody listening. So, as you think about what skills are valuable in your PhD training, um, how would you get to them most efficiently and effectively? And how would other people get to them? So maybe you learn a certain way, but how could we design a program that that trained all of us in the same, um, the same basic skills that would make you a great bench scientist as you went on to be a postdoc, um, or would make you a great consultant or a great teacher or a great whatever. What, are, what would that training look like? Would it look like projects? Would it look like more classes? Would it look like, I don't know, going to schools and, and teaching other people science? I'm not sure exactly what the right answer is, but I'd love to hear from people. Absolutely. You know, Dan, one of the things that led me to this is through my work that I do on a day-to-day basis, but also through this process and this podcast of the people we've talked to and the stories we've heard, you know, I really think about what are the aspects of graduate training now that are really tripping people up, that are broken, that that are really impeding people's progress and, and their well-being. And I really feel like one of the big ones that we hear all the time is just this uncertainty that creeps in towards the end. And I know you experienced that too. And is there a way to mitigate that uncertainty with time to degree and not lose training? And I think there is. It is one of the hardest parts mentally. And I remember it so distinctly, you know, like I knew I needed to be done, but I couldn't say whether that was a year or that was three years. And if, if I knew the amount of time I could make a plan to get through it, but when you could do another year and still be another year away, that's just all motivation goes away. It's so demoralizing to to look down an endless hallway. Absolutely. And I imagine a day where it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. Well, you almost talked me into it. <laughs> I'll keep working on it. I expect angry t- tweets this week. <laughs> all right, Dan, let's move on. Dan, we sound so much younger. Do we? No, not really. Kind of the same. Okay, great. You know, Dan, I had not listened to to that episode since 2016 when we recorded it. So, before I, li- I listened to all of our episodes <laughs> each day, Josh, just to stay fresh on everything we've ever said. It's getting challenging to do that now with so many episodes. I have to listen at 17x, <laughs> very fast. 
Well, you know, this, that conversation that, that reignited on, on social media, you know, has really, really got me thinking about this again. And, you know, one of the things that has happened since that episode back in, in 2016, there have been several recent fairly high profile reports about the mental health crisis in graduate training, specifically in the sciences. And it's not that there weren't <laughs> mental health issues back in 2016 or before, but uh, a lot more light is being shed on that. And that's getting a lot more attention now, uh, I think, from people involved in training. And, you know, one thing I just can't help or I can't stop thinking about is thinking about my own experience. And, and I know, Dan, your experiences too, as we alluded to in this interview, there's a big part of the stress that you feel as a graduate student that at least to some degree has to do with that uncertainty about when you're going to be done. You're not making any progress if you can't see the goal, right? There's no, there's no sensation of movement because the end is not getting any closer. And that, that feels debilitating and it feels depressing and it feels hopeless. And I think that was what I, what I expressed in the, in the conversation we had three years ago. I still can, can take myself back to that place where I feel the anxiety of not knowing if it was going to be another year or two years or three years, or if I would do those three or four or whatever years and then have to leave without a degree for some other circumstance. So, so it's not even if I wait long enough, I'll get the degree. It's I could wait a long time and get nothing. That is a that was a very painful place, and it's it's something that I can still feel if I if I try to go back there. And I think one thing that is is challenging for all of us who are on the other side of our PhD training is, I think it's easy to forget how it felt to be in the middle of it, and you know, especially when I think about people involved in making decisions about how PhD training works at their institutions. You know, it's easy, and sometimes I catch myself like it's really easy on this side of it to say you know what, hang in there, it's going to be okay. It's just a limited time period, it's a short part of your life. It's going to end, and that's true. Which is how it feels now. That is how it feels now, and it it's absolutely is true. Then. But yeah, if you, you can really lose that perspective of what it actually felt like to be in those shoes, not knowing when it was going to be done, and especially you know, getting to a point where you'd invested so much of your time and energy and self into the process, and really even knowing that, what you want to do or what you don't want to do, that the, the things you're doing day in and day out aren't necessarily at a certain point helping you move towards a, a path or a career that's what you want to do. And then it can be very tempting to want to step off the path altogether because your day-to-day experience doesn't really feel like it's it's getting you anywhere that you want to go. Can I, you know, that, that's one of the things that stood out to me in that earlier conversation, which is what is graduate training for? What is a PhD for? And I think one of the sacred cows that we have not talked about is that a PhD should mean a thousand different things. Maybe it's true that a PhD should mean you can go on to teach college and that there should be some other training or degree or whatever for those of us who want to go out and work in business or finance or be a writer why why is it important that that's the degree that we all get fundamentally what i'm asking is what does it mean to have a phd is it for you is, does it mean that it's that you've learned the scientific method by doing it is that a a crystal form of a phd to you or do you have some other way of phrasing it if i think about just my own experience and i think this is what's really challenging for 
graduate students, especially as they're thinking about transitioning from their graduate school or from their PhD to a career. And Dan, we've talked about this on the show numerous times of trainees not doing a good job of assessing what their actual transferable skills are that they've learned during their graduate training. Because if you think about it during grad school and during your postdoc, you focus so much on technical skills and the day-to-day of what you're doing. I mean, really, if you think about what you're doing, like what I was doing in graduate school was I'm doing cell culture every day. I'm doing genetics every day. I'm doing mouse experiments. That is how I'm spending the hours of my day, day in and day out. So when I ask myself, what am I preparing myself for? It feels like, well, I guess a job that has cell culture and genetics and animal experiments, because that's literally how I'm spending the majority of my waking hours. Which is a, which is a technician role, basically. You're, you're, you are technically performing the experiments. You've got to understand how they work. You're able to perform them adeptly. But but again, I think you're picking up other things by designing the research project and trying to interpret the results. Absolutely. And that's what we work really hard, you know, on this podcast. And I know, you know, also in, in my role and, and a lot of us who are involved in, in helping graduate students get through their training is helping students understand those exact things you're alluding to, Dan, that you know, you really are learning a lot of really useful and really important skills that are going to serve you well in a lot of different career contexts. Now, I guess what I think about, though, and this goes back to your first, your, your point you were making earlier, your question, what's the point of the PhD then? Well, I think we would agree, and a lot of people would agree, that the point of a PhD is certainly not to learn these technical skills, but is to learn these critical thinking skills, these analysis skills, these ability these abilities to ask, to look at the world, identify problems, ask the right questions, and know how to approach solving these problems to answer these questions. But at what point do you get there and do you, how do you assess that? Papers. It's just papers. <laughs> well, and that's the requirement for a lot of PhD programs are, are papers. It is, it is a physical manifestation, presumably, that if you have a, a high authorship on a paper that you have had to think critically, that you've had to come up with a hypothesis, that you've had to research the literature of what's been done before you, that you've had to design and carry out experiments. All of those things had to take place for you to get a figure in that paper, in theory, right? And that authorship allegedly means, this identifies to me that you have these skills that we would want sure, to Sure. Now, the, the first authorship placement we've talked about, that can be up for grabs depending on how your lab operates. But to be on the paper... Um, I think that's a, a physical representation that you have taken many of those steps. Do you feel that papers are the best measure or do you think there's something else? I, mean, I don't think papers are the best measure because if they were, then you might interpret that, okay, I had three papers and you had one paper. So I learned my PhD skills better than you because I had more papers. That may be true. Uh, so this is not a good example, but no, but I mean, just, I, but, and I don't think anyone would, would say that's true to your, to your point. There are two things that have to be true to get a paper. One, you have to have gone through all the steps I just mentioned. And two, your project has to have worked out in a lucky or well-planned out way. Uh, take your pick of how that works. So I could have done the same amount of work, the same amount of research. And my hypothesis was either incorrect or my mouse died, or whatever it is. Or you got scooped. Bad luck, or I got scooped. 
I had negative results that we just don't get to publish. So I've done the first 99% of that process, but the 1% didn't work out. And therefore I don't have anything in my hand to say, Oh, I'm actually a scientist too. No, you're absolutely right, Dan. And I think this is a really, I think this is a really complex and, and nuanced issue. This reliance on, on papers, especially as a graduation requirement, because something else we actually talked about in the series three years ago, when we kicked off this discussion, we were talking about ways to modernize the PhD and we talked about this fixed length time to degree. But one of the other things we talked about was the importance and the promise of team science and some of the challenges that arise with the academic science model where a graduate student really needs to have an independent project. They need to have their own paper. So there's really this incentive for you as a trainee, well, I have to have I have to get a first author paper. I have to have something that just I'm doing on my own and it's up to me to to drive it to the finish line so I can move on with my life. But that's not necessarily the best way to do science or to learn. Well, and also that's not necessarily how science works out in the real world in in industry situations in business environments. But with these graduation requirements tied to these individualistic goals, you really don't have a choice as a trainee whether or not to pursue those. So I don't know that science benefits <laughs> with this way of doing things either. Josh, have you had any... So when we talked about this before, and, and we've talked about it um, even today, there's a lot of, this doesn't feel right. This unlimited length, this paper, you know, paper-focused, this um, you have to individually complete all of these steps and, and take a long time. Have you given any thought to or, or heard anybody talk about actual material changes that we could make today? Have you thought about any plans or programs that, that we could try out tomorrow to find out, is this actually a better way of measuring this? Well, I think that's one thing that has potentially changed very recently on this topic, at least from our perspective. So one thing I'd be very interested to know is if any of our listeners out there in the United States have heard of or experienced any graduate training programs, any PhD programs that operate under a finite model, under a fixed length model. I personally don't know of any, but um, thanks to our, our great community of listeners, we actually have heard from some folks who are doing their PhD training in Australia. And apparently in Australia, there's this national model, the way funding works, uh, where PhDs are actually limited, Dan, not at five years, but at three. Okay, so great teaser and great setup. We're going to talk to a student who has uh, been in that process, and we're going to find out what it's like. What does it even mean to to be done in three years with a PhD program? And what would that mean for the rest of us who suffered through five plus? Well, I'm really excited to hear about this three-year PhD thing, because that's going to make my super controversial five-year PhD seem completely conservative you have to in take comparison. Down to a two and a half year. <laughs> oh, well, five years. That sounds like eternity. Welcome to Joshua Hall's 15-minute PhD <laughs> or your money back. 99.95. Oh, call now and get a second PhD. For... <laughs> you know, Dan, one, one last thing I wanted to say that has been really eye-opening to me, as, as you know, and I think we've talked about on the show, I've been really active in, in research on graduate admissions and have been fairly vocal advocate for graduate programs moving away from the GRE and standardized testing um, with regard to graduate admissions. Given the fact that once we started actually collecting data on some of our processes that we've used for decades, 
it turned out that maybe the way we'd been doing things wasn't really rooted in actual facts based on what we were trying to assess. But one thing I encountered as, you know, even I went about presenting some of our data and not just our data, but data from a growing number of other folks is that academics are very resistant to change, even in the face of new information and new data that that contradicts long-held beliefs. And it's because they believe that that the rigor of the program and the length of time it takes are the same thing. Is that right? I think so. And I think this is a good thing, but I think faculty and individuals who are involved in graduate training, and I include my, myself in this too, I think we all want to have really great training and really great training opportunities for our students. I think agreeing on what exactly that means is is where the debate lies. And I guess one thing that surprised me a little bit that I noticed that tends to instantly come out when you suggest something like a fixed length PhD is that somehow by defining a definitive endpoint that you somehow are completely reducing all rigor and standards for that program. And I don't know if this is where the definition of straw man would come in, uh, but I don't necessarily see it that way. Of course, there would still be standards and, and rigor. And Everyone imagines a student that they know immediately, and they think, how would this person cheat in this new system? So if you have a, an open-ended PhD program where you see students who never schedule a committee meeting and they take a year goes by and they haven't finished an experiment and they just kind of wait around until something happens. You look at that student, you say, well, that's not fair. That student is going to get a PhD, right? And so we immediately think of how are people going to cheat this system? I think what you're advocating for here is a system in which that student never gets to that point where they're, they're not so demotivated by the, the prospect that they stop doing work, that they're not left to drift unendingly without oversight or check-ins with their committee. So we imagine the worst possible outcome with the with a student that we may know in our current program, but we don't think about how do we support those students uh, who have we've kind of left behind right now. Yeah, and I'm just imagining you know, students in a program. They get into their lab. They're having mandated six month committee meeting check ins. You know they are are motivated by the lead up to those meetings and those check-ins. They're getting advice on a timely basis and they know what they're working towards. You know, they've got this deadline and and they want to finish as much as possible by, by that end date. I'm just thinking for me, me personally, Dan, I would have gotten even more done probably in that shorter length of time, um, knowing that it was coming to an end. And as far as planning my transition you know, a lot of students get really lost in that no man's land uncertainty of the end date, but it would really force you to, I think it would force a lot of students to really engage with their career transition and what they wanted to do, knowing that it was actually coming at a specified period of time. It's not going to sneak up on you in the same way. Yeah. So settle down critics. He's not talking about (laughs) everybody just getting a PhD for sitting in a seat. But what I'm really excited about, Dan, is is what you alluded to, finding out that I am actually not a completely crazed lunatic. Just mostly. So, Dan, I'm so glad by some miraculous convergent evolution that a lot of these really crazy radical ideas that we discussed three years ago actually happen in a faraway land called Australia. 
Notably, it plays with echidnas and platypi. It's so. a crazy place. It is. Yeah, a lot of weird real. things going on there. <laughs> Egg-laying mammals. It's not... Three-year PhDs. <laughs> it wouldn't be the place that you would start your, your march toward a three-year PhD, but the fact that they're doing it successfully, we'll find out more about it in, in the next episode. That's right. So uh, be sure to tune in then and find out about how you, too, could get your PhD in three years. And learn to surf. All right, Dan. Well, it was great to... Uh, Talk about this topic again. Rehash these, uh, repick these old wounds. Do you feel better? Because I know you had a bee in your bonnet about the, the idea. I'm feeling fired up about this, Dan. And, and here's this why. This is going to be your new GRE. You're going to be think it might tilting be. at windmills again. I think it might be, Dan. This is my dream. I just need one program out there to give this a shot and see what happens, right? Or maybe an entire continent. Maybe so. Uh, Dan, I have a lot more to say about this and a lot more ideas, but I think I'm going to save those for next week. All right, Josh. Well, if anybody listening, uh, as Josh mentioned, if you're in the U.S. and you know about a program here that has a fixed-length PhD, we would love to hear from you. Um, if you have any other questions or topic ideas, we would love to hear them. You can just email us, podcast at hellophd.com. Or send us a tweet at HelloPhD. Clearly, Josh likes to read the Twitters. I love the Twitter sphere. Uh, you can leave a message on our Facebook page. And if you like the show, you can leave us that review on Apple Podcasts. We love the feedback. If you'd like to support the show, just become a patron. Simply go to our website, HelloPhD.com, and click the Become a Patron button. Or visit Patreon.com slash HelloPhD. We appreciate the beer money. And thanks again to Adrian for this delicious dessert. Thanks, Adrian. You are the man. And we are almost out of our listener beer, so if you would like to supply more, we'll drink it on the show. <laughs> that and that sounds like begging. Three weeks in a row, right? <laughs> All right, Dan. It's been fun as always, and we'll talk to you next time. Can't wait. See you then. Bye.